Welcome to the Career Guy Podcast, a chance to talk with different people and share stories about their careers and career paths, giving you an insightful look at different careers that do exist. Here's your host, Mickey Horvath. Today, I'm interviewing Bruce Voigt. Bruce is a graduate of the Columbia Academy of Radio and Television Broadcasting. He is also a licensed practicing realtor in Calgary, Alberta. He has an array of designations, which includes an accredited buyer's representative, a seller's representative specialist, a real estate negotiating expert, and a certified condominium specialist. In this interview, Bruce talks about his extensive career in radio broadcasting, in which he has had various roles in an array of stations throughout Alberta and British Columbia. He talks about the ins and outs of the industry and how technology has changed the industry. After 30 years in this business, Bruce talks about how he has made the transition to becoming a realtor. He describes his career change and the challenges that he faced. Some real good lessons here for anybody that is considering a career change, especially later in life. In doing so, he also explains how he became a realtor and how he developed this new career of his. This interview will benefit anybody interested in getting into radio or television broadcasting, becoming a realtor, the pros and the cons of public and private secondary education, and above all, most importantly, doing a career change later in life. This is a very informative and very motivational interview. And with that, I'd like to welcome Bruce. So this afternoon, I'm talking to an old friend of mine, Bruce Voigt. And Bruce has had quite the career. I'm going to let him explain his career to you. But I want to just thank Bruce this afternoon for taking the time and letting me interview him. Well, thanks, Mickey. It's been, uh, we go back more than a few years here, back to high school and playing a, a couple of bands together even and then having a good time. So it's really my pleasure to see you again and spend some time here with you today. Well, great. Uh, I appreciate your time. So yeah, we did go to high school together. You have grown up in Calgary your entire life, have you not? Born in Winnipeg originally and moved to Calgary for grade one. So all through school, grade one, right through college, was here in Calgary. And that was from early 70s right through till the mid-80s. So after high school, what were your interests? So when I got out of high school, I had this big dream that I was going to travel and do a bunch of different things and kind of decide what I wanted to do from there. But a quick look at the bank account showed that, oh, no, I don't have money to do anything that I want to do. Uh, I'm not able to go down to California and lived there for a year and I knew what the prices in Vancouver were for living there. So that wasn't going to work out. So I had to figure out something where I could start making a living right out of school. So it took about seven, eight months out of high school to get involved in in radio and in broadcasting. So I originally was enrolled at the Columbia Academy of Radio and Television Arts. At that time, they were just on Center Street South just south of the Calgary Tower, about 13th Avenue. The building's still there, actually. It's something else now, but that's where it started. And graduated from there. It was a two-year course. Was able to move on from there and then got into radio and 
I started, my first job was in Edson, Alberta. I served Edson, Hinton, Jasper, all through that area. I was there for about three years. And then there's an, an amazing rock station in Red Deer that I wanted to work for. It was Z99 at the time, and they were pretty heavy rock station. At that time, the rock stations in Calgary or Edmonton weren't playing the same heavy rock. They were still playing the, the rock music, but not the heavy stuff. So I really tried to work in getting into Red Deer. I met with the program manager a few times. His name's Bob Mills. I still chat with Bob whenever I can. Amazing guy. He decided to take a chance on me and he hired me. I was there for about three years in Red Deer. Loved it there. And the way the, the industry was going at the time, there was a lot of different automations and computerizations and I think radio is not the only industry that was hit with that, which meant there was fewer jobs. So I found the, the short end there. The job was eliminated because of automation. So I had to find something else and I moved on. I was in Prince George, BC. I was there for about six months. Moved back to Alberta, moved up to Fort McMurray, was up there almost seven years actually. Helped program a station up there and did the morning show and different things. From that point, moved back to Calgary for about six or seven months. Got a call from Bob Harris at CJ92 AM 1060 at the time and said that he had something for me. I wanted to know if I was interested. So I went in to talk to Bob, another great guy, and worked there for about six years at uh, CJ and uh, AM 106 or AM 1060. And then I had the opportunity to work with a guy who launched a station in Airdrie. Jamie Thiessen is his name, and he launched that in about uh, 2000. Well, we launched it in 2007. So that was fun. A real interesting thing to do, to be the operations manager and general manager and do all the hiring and things the way that you would like to do them with your team and to your preferences, the music you play and the staff that works there. And we had an amazing team there. And I was there for just about five years. And then the station was sold and another company came in and it took over and they have a very specific way of how they, they like to do business and uh, everything was fine. But so I hadn't quite left there yet, actually, but I was chatting with some people about maybe it's a chance for me to start thinking about something new. I've been doing radio almost 30 years at that point and um, looking for new challenges and something new. And I uh, talked to a couple of friends and they said, have you ever thought about becoming a realtor? And this was about 2012. And I thought about it for a bit and I thought, well, the pros and the cons, I, I really thought about it for a while. And I thought, you know what, this would be really something that I'd like to do. At that point, I was approaching, I was in my late 40s and to do a complete change in, in lifestyle from what I've, all I've known in my adult life is, was radio. And then to try to, to do something brand new was, was super scary, but it's been good. I was licensed in 2012, 2013, and I've just been a, a realtor since then. And it's been very challenging, especially in our economy here in Alberta, the way it's been over the last handful of years, but never a dull moment. And it's been a lot of fun, Mickey. Great. Well, you give us a good synopsis of your of the last 40 years in less than five minutes. And I want to film up about another 50 minutes. Well, 
But let's break down the nuts and bolts of things. So let's go back 40 years. And when you went to, you said it was Columbia, Columbia Academy. Yes. So how does somebody get into a program like that? And what kind of skills did you need to get in? And what did you learn? What was the two years like when you, when you went to that program? So, yeah, when I went in there, basically they were a private institution, not like the States or the Mount Royal Colleges broadcast schools. It was more of a private business. So basically you go in, you do an interview, they have you do a couple of voice tests and things like that, give you the price of what it will, it will cost to do all that, to get through the course. And then you think about it if you want to apply. And then I did. And then I had to wait to hear back from them to see if they were, they would accept me at that time. So I think I was one of eight at the time because it's an ongoing system there. They had different phases for each course that they taught at that time. So there wasn't real semesters, starting dates and end dates. It was just kind of an ongoing thing. It was a lot of which we've really become used to here in the last couple of years, but it was really work from home where I'd really only go into classroom with COVID. Now there's a lot of that stuff, but back then it was really strange where you would just go in to a classroom for, or an office for an hour a week and you'd hand in your assignments and you'd go over things for an hour or two and then you'd leave and then they'd give you some things to work on and you basically come back a week later and hand in your assignments and then you go through the whole process again and and they would grade them and, and tell you how to work on things. So it was just like a private institution, more so than a state or a Mount Royal. It was a very unique situation there. Sounds like it. So for people that are listening that are maybe outside of Alberta and may not understand what SAIT and NATE is, SAIT and NATE are technical schools that are essentially run well, back then they were run on public money. They were their government schools is what they are. And so far, my understanding, they still are, but they they sort of do raise a lot more of their own capital. So having said that, Columbia was more of a private school or is a private school, I should say. So did, did you look at Sater or Nate's program and did you compare or did you just straight jump into Columbia? To be 100% honest with you, I wish I would have had that opportunity to decide which I was going to do. But my grades were so poor in high school, I really didn't think that SATE would accept me. So I didn't actually even apply to SATE. So I, I thought, well, here's something that I really want to do. I want to get into radio and television, but I don't really have the good marks out of high school to get in to do it. So I kind of did a, an end around there a little bit and tried to get in the industry without actually you know, going to SATE or going to a secondary school. It was expensive for the time, but I have to say they did help me get my first job. So I have to say I was very fortunate, I feel. My timing was good, for sure. So for people that are listening and they're actually dealing with the dilemma, they're looking at SAIT or NATE or more of a public institution opposed to a private one, what words of advice or recommendations would you have? In hindsight, right? If I could go back and, and do it again, I would definitely have done the SATE or the NATE or the the post-secondary school, college or university type education. Because once you graduate, when you've got that diploma, okay, well, what now? Someone still has to hire you and someone still has to bring you on board. So you're starting from scratch. You don't have anything else except basically where you've gone to school. What's your education? For me, unfortunately, that didn't reflect well on my education. Or I shouldn't say it didn't reflect well. 
it didn't reflect as well as it would have if it would have been a SAIT or a NATE or a post-secondary education. But having said that, they were able to get me into my first job. So they're no longer around. And, and I don't have anything bad to say about Columbia Academy. If I would have done it again, or if I was able to do it again, I would have done the same route. The one thing I picked up on when you were talking is, I think it was your first job or your second job that you had. And again, 30 years, you listed off quite a few radio places or places that you worked. And I think it was your first or second job again, where you said automation. So you saw a lot of changes. I can't imagine 30 years working in radio, you've seen a lot of changes. Could you just sort of highlight some of the changes that you've seen in that industry? And if somebody wants to get into the industry, what can they expect? I think the biggest changes in the last several years is the collaboration of parent companies that are sharing resources for different stations or different markets. So when, when I started each, this goes back 30 plus years, but each radio station had its own morning show and had its own program director and had its own music director and had a news department of anywhere from one to a dozen people working at that radio station. More so in the last probably 10 years, I would say, there's a lot of collaboration between companies that have, parent companies that have stations in different markets. So they might uh, do a thing, it's called voice tracking, where they can actually voice track shows from a certain market or a different market, a different town or a different. So say hypothetically a midday show in Red Deer could voice track the evening show in let's say Lethbridge or somewhere like that, where there's no one actually in the building at that time. It's all just pre-recorded voice tracks. And you can do all the song introductions and the song extras and those type of things. And the automation systems are so good now, they can actually put in little pieces where if there is someone in the newsroom or something, they can actually insert traffic and weather and, and news, local news that's happened in the last hour, the last couple hours to make it all sound relevant and make it sound up to date. Even though the music part of the show was recorded maybe eight hours ago or maybe even a day before. So that's a big change is the automation systems have gotten very good. The number of employees, obviously, with the automation systems getting so good, the number of employees goes down. So all I could say to anyone that would be interested in getting into broadcasting, radio or television, just get your hands on as, as much as you can. Learn as many different aspects as you can, because even though it might not be your favorite thing, let's say, to be in a, in a newsroom doing news or writing commercials or scheduling commercials, they call that the traffic, radio traffic department. Even if those aren't your favorite things, my number one suggestion would be just learn as much as you possibly can, because there is a chance that you'll be put in a situation where if you're applying for a job or you're already working for a job, at a job, and maybe they might have some layoffs coming or they have to let some people go, they're going to look at, okay, well, who's the most valuable person on the team? There's Mickey. Mickey can do the news. He can do an on-air shift. He knows how to do traffic scheduling and commercials. He knows the automation system very well. He's a pretty technical guy. He's a much better fit for us than, say, Bruce would, who just wants to be uh, a rock star radio DJ and he doesn't care about the rest of the stuff. So let's keep Mickey. So 
those are the kind of things you have to keep in mind going forward. The more you know, the more valuable you are to the companies that, that you might be working for moving forward. So it sounds like to me, like it's a real competitive industry. And it also sounds like the days of the famous DJ, uh, Howard, somebody like Howard Stern. I mean, those days are beginning to disappear. Would that be right? Yes. Yeah. And even like, say, a, a Stern, like there's a, a great example where he's moved to Sirius XM. They can't even really call it that radio now because it's streaming audio. They're selling subscriptions for it. And, and there's people will buy Sirius just because of Howard Stern and, and because of his drawing power. That's how he's getting paid. However, tens of millions of dollars he's making every year. That's why it's because he's such a draw. So and the bigger stations too, like the Ryan Seacrest, there's another one for you. I just heard this last week, his morning show, and I believe it's in Los Angeles. It's pre-recorded. So if he'll pre-record that, he'll leave. So he'll actually, while that's playing, he'll actually be on a plane to New York or somewhere because he also does the live show with Kelly Ripa. So he has to fly to New York. I think he has three or four flights every day across America every weekday. So he's on his morning show in LA plus a syndication. Oh, and he does the, I think it's a top 20 or top 40 countdown or something. So he's at any time, he could be on 60 different radio stations in the States. That's almost inhuman traveling around that much. And yes. just when I listen to your career, when you gave that synopsis earlier on, you moved around a lot in Alberta. And it sounds like to me as well that you have to be not just adaptable, but you have to be willing to just to pack up and move to these smaller towns. W would that be right? And yeah, absolutely. My first job was $800 a month before taxes. You're a single guy, you've got your vehicle and a couple of sets of clothes and a box of craft dinner, whatever you have, and you just, you make it work and you just move along. You hear of other jobs that come up possibly or other openings or someone's maybe thinking of leaving or whatever. You talk to them and then if they're interested in hiring you, then you don't really talk the money until they say they might be interested in you. But more than once, I, I moved for $100 more a month. Because at that time, when you're only making 800, 900 sounds like a whole lot more, but at the end of the day, it really isn't. But I did that more than once. So then again, too, it's, it's not a lucrative, it's, you won't get rich. Uh, no, no. There's spinoffs, like people will do different types of things where they'll do fun locations, they're called remotes. So you can make anywhere from 100 to $500 for a, a three or four hour fun location somewhere. So there are little things that you can pick up along the way and, and make some extra money. If you get in good with a client and say they want to do a remote every, say even, even one a month, that, that's, you know, say two or $300 extra in your jeans every month, right? So it's kind of, kind of nice that way. There's other people that will, they'll do voiceover work. They'll do uh, commercial voicing or radio station imaging, the station IDs and things like that, trying to supplement their income. There's different ways to make it work, but there's not a ton of money in it. It's a heck of a lot of fun, but not too many people get rich from it though. So then, okay, rolling along. So we're 30 years, you obviously just jumped around a lot. You've got a lot of experience in this. The one thing too, I want to ask you about though, I think it was the last position that you had in radio where you actually developed or working as a program director. Is that right? Yes, yes. 
So what did that entail? Setting up a station and getting the music and the whole nine yards, what did that actually entail? That was my probably my biggest highlight in the whole history of radio for me anyway, just over 30 years. Just from day one, when Jamie received the license, he applied for the broadcast license from the Canadian CRTC. And he was given the, the license and, and Jamie called me and said, hey, do you want to come work for me? I, I'd like to make you general manager. And then we hit the ground running. So right away, we had to decide what are we going to do with our station? We had certain guidelines that we had to do. It had to be music, adult music focused with lots of local information, which is great. So we sit down and you tweak a little bit and you make time frames, day parts and, and hourly clocks of what you're going to do every hour, how much music you're going to play, how much local information, things like that. Kind of put everything together at the same time, getting rights, broadcast rights for a, a bunch of music so that we could actually play the music and have the rights to play the music and then hiring staff and then securing a building where we're actually going to broadcast from. And then the whole technical thing of broadcasting from your studio to the transmitter site and then out from the transmitter site out to the public. So there's a bunch of technical stuff. So you have to bring on a bunch of engineers that, that they basically tell you what needs to be done and, and how they're going to do it. And you start interviewing staff and uh, take it day by day and just start piecing it together. And it was it was really exciting, Mickey, doing that. That was, like I say, it would, it would have to be one of the biggest highlights for me was launching a station from day one and just kind of doing things the way I wanted to do it. And, and I, of course, I had to answer to, to Jamie, the, the owner of the station, and of course, to all the staff. I had to justify why we we're doing things a certain way. But we had an amazing staff that we worked with. One fella that we actually hired out of state, he did his practicum with us, came to work for us. You were speaking of Howard Stern. He worked for us for, I believe it was about a year. And then he moved on to Rogers Station in Calgary. He moved on to Rogers in Toronto. From there, he became the head producer at the Howard Stern Show. All in, I'll say, might be wrong, but I think it was about six years from the time he graduated. He was the pro imaging producer of the Howard Stern Show. Okay, so for someone like that, that was just luck of the draw, and he was just in the right place at the right time that enabled him to move up that fast? So this guy, I'll mention him by name, and I, people know him. His name is Ron Tarrant, and Ron has so much going for him. I always felt he was amazingly driven. He, he never wanted to just get the job done. Everything had to be done to his satisfaction which sometimes were actually even higher than my requirement. He'd like, oh, that sounds good, Bruce, but let's do it this way or whatever. So he would stay after work and just do what he needed to do. But he, he really understood what needed to be done to get ahead, to make an impact and get ahead. He did that very well. He also is just the nicest guy ever. And, and he just, he takes direction very well. And if any politics come up or misunderstandings or whatever. He's very good at just, you know, distancing himself from that. A, a true pro, I guess is the best way to put it. And another thing he did very well was his networking. So from what I understand, when he was at SAIT, he came to work for us. He was already networking with Rogers in Calgary. He was already networking with Rogers in Toronto. 
And he was even networking with the gang at the Howard Stern Show. And this was a kid that was 19, 20 years old, just getting out of state, very casually letting them know that, hey, you know, I, I'd really like to come work for you one day. Here's here's the latest stuff I've done. Any critique you have or uh, uh, criticism you, you could give me would be helpful or whatever. So he, right from the get-go, his networking was unbelievable. So unfortunately, we lost him really quickly because Rogers in Calgary hired him. Uh, a great guy by the name of Dave Lloyd brought him on board here in Calgary. And then he moved on to Toronto. And the whole time he was networking with everyone. And before you know it, the position came open in New York for Howard Stern. Well, they were looking at who are we going to hire because... Person A is leaving now, so now we're going to have a position open. Well, who are we going to hire for our imaging person? And here's this guy, this Canadian that's been bugging him for three or four years. That's really been aggressive, been been talking to us the whole time, and his work has been getting really, really good. Not only is this kid on the ball and he wants to work here, but he's amazing at what he does. So they offered him the job, and I think he was there about. I want to say three years, four years, maybe. So those were the three things I, I find, uh, Mickey, that he did uh, really well. He understood what needed to be done, and he just always did it things to a, a, a certain standard, his and which was his standard, not what was asked to be done, but he always did it above what was asked. He played the game really well as far as working for a manager and different people and different personalities, working with them. He played that game very well. He's one heck of a nice guy on top of everything. And he's super talented. So I teased him that, oh, he was in the right spot at the right time. But I know it's not all that because there was a bunch of people that were there at that same time too that didn't get hired. So he's a real pro and he's very good at what he does. So that's a guy that I think people can really learn from. Well, that's a good story. Yeah, definitely good good points on that one. But let's go back to you. I'm just curious. So your program director, how long did it take from ground zero to when the radio station actually opened up and you actually are on the air and putting music and advertisements on the air? How long did it actually take? When we were starting to talk in November that we knew we had the license and we had to start moving forward on things. We had the building secured, I think, in November, middle of December. And then while well, the engineers and NAVCAN is Navigation Canada, they have to be on board to make sure that your line of sight from your, your transmitter or from your building is going to your transmitter, not affecting airspace, with the airplanes and everything like that. So it took quite a while for them to get things in line for us to get figured out. So we started in November and we ended up launching on April 7th that spring that's fast yeah. that takes a lot of work to get everything up and going and that was done relatively quickly so you were there for now if my memory serves me correctly you were there for you said for three years is that right in in Airdrie, i was there uh five five okay five years so you're there for five years and so did you just burn out or just you just got tired of the industry or you just were looking for different challenges yeah, I, I think that's what it was. I think I was a little bit of both. I was I was getting burnt out on just the whole business itself. And nothing against it. I mean, I loved it for more than 30 years. But I was just, I think I was just done. I just didn't have too much to offer at that point. 
And I was looking for a new challenge too. Okay. So, so then you mentioned in your synopsis that a friend of yours or an acquaintance that me mentioned to you that you should look into becoming a realtor. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So how did you look into it? How does somebody get into being a realtor? Let's, let's start walking into that. Okay. So the first thing I did was I went on the CREB website. CREB is Calgary Real Estate Board. So I went on the CREB website just to find out about licensing and how it all happens and, and how it works. They have courses there. You have to actually go through, uh, it's another acronym, it's RECA. It's the Real Estate Council of Alberta. And they're the organization that basically gives out realtor licenses and brokers for real estate, basically. So you get your license through RECA, the Real Estate Council of Alberta, but you work on getting your license through CREP, the Calgary Real Estate Board. So I was doing the course. The course at the time was, there was two options. You could do it in the classroom at CREB, Monday to Friday, usually nine to five, or you could do it from home. And the challenge with being from home was I was still working part-time. I did for a short time, I did radio traffic for in the helicopter. So I was in the, the global traffic helicopter. So the global traffic girls would be in the back seat and I would be in the front seat and I'd be doing AM traffic reports in the morning. So the only problem was I was there till nine or nine 15 every morning, but the courses at CREB started at nine every day. And at that time they had a rule during the course, you could be late once as in not being there for 9am. The second time you were late, you were kicked out of the course. So being in the classroom at CREB and doing the traffic, it wasn't going to work. So I did the only other option, which was doing it from home, which I found to be for, for me anyways, it seemed to work quite well because I, I could learn at my own pace. There's different phases in the, the course. And I found that if I picked up something quick, I could move on quicker. But if I needed some time to kind of reread a chapter or kind of go over something, I could spend a little bit more time and make sure I understood it better. Whereas if I was in a classroom environment, and this is just me speaking, some people are completely opposite. But if I was in a classroom, if there was something I didn't understand, then it's like, well, I either put my hand up and I stop the momentum of the class and, and make the teacher go back or just pretend I get it and just hopefully it's not that important. So it was one of those things. So for me, it was just easier just to do it on my own. So I did the real estate course and it took about 10 months to get it all completed. And then at the time when I did the course, we had to do residential real estate, we did commercial real estate. And you did rural, which is acreages and, and farms and things like that. So you're learning things about rural and commercial sales. And I knew I was just going to do residential, but I still had to be up to speed with, with the other. So it took about 10 months. And then I got my license and I worked for a, a Remax office who, who brought me on and mentored me for the first year in a bit. And there's actually a course at CREB. It's called, so now I'm a realtor, so now what? That's the name of the course. And it's so true because you get your real estate license and you've got the piece of paper to hang on the wall. That's great. Now what do I do? Like, how do I, how do I get my business going? How do I get my clients? How do I get my listings? 
How do I let people know what I'm doing now? How do I get them to trust that I know what I'm doing? All those kind of things you have to kind of figure out yourself. Let's take a step back. Let's go back to the courses. For people that are interested in becoming a realtor, what kind of courses are you taking and what's involved with it? What are you learning exactly? If you could break uh, that down so, a little bit more. So with the realtor course, with the residential course rather, you're learning a lot about basically the most important things are what you are ultimately responsible for and how legally and just ethically what the best way to do things you find out uh, a lot about transactions and dealing with buyers and sellers and the ethical way of doing business, the, the proper way of doing it so that you're protecting, you know, your client's best interests. And you're kind of keeping an eye on the other side of the transaction to make sure that they're doing everything above board as well. Everything's done being done correctly. And it's, it's an interesting thing because of the transactions that I've done, I don't think I, one transaction has been exactly like another transaction. There's always something that there's an anomaly that's completely different. Every transaction I've done, it's almost like I have something that I haven't dealt with before. So it's really? an ongoing education. Yeah. Okay. We'll get into that in a few minutes, but I just want to harp on a little bit more about the education. So to get your license, is there an exam involved? At the time when, when I took it, there was six phases and there was an exam after each phase and you needed, I think it was a hundred questions. And I think you could get five or six wrong out of the hundred. So it was a very tough test. So learning from home, this was the tough part, the challenging part was learning from home. You had no idea what was going to be on the test. So you get phase one of residential is say. 300 pages or 400 pages in this manual and your test is going to have 100 questions about something of those three or 400 pages, but you don't know what those questions are. So you have to know it. So you have to get your head around that, that book and really learn it. And every time you take the test, you'd have to pay another $25. You'd have to wait for the next scheduled testing period. And it, it really just slows down the process. So, I was fortunate enough to make sure that I had it down, that I didn't want to, to fail any of the phases and have to go back to the drawing board and do it again. So I was fortunate enough to pass all six without failing one. But from what I heard when I graduated at the time, then half the people that take the tests fail at least one of the six phases that they have to redo the phase. So I was pretty happy when I heard that. But I, again, I think that went back to the homeschooling. I was going at my own speed and I probably spent longer on it than I should have, but I just wanted to make sure I had it before I went into the classroom for the test. What were the six phases? Could you, could you list them off? Oh, you know what? I'm sorry. There was nine. Nine phases. Okay. There's nine yeah. phases. So there's nine phases. Uh, the first one was just uh, about the overall course, what to expect. This was 203 pages of to tell you about what the course was coming up and certain things that you needed to know, like as a realtor, what is your fiduciary duties to your clients moving forward and things like that. So the most important is obey their lawful instruction. That's a fiduciary duty that you have to obey basically as a realtor. So that's phase one, phase two, okay, mortgages, phase two, three, 
real estate law. Four was more law. Five was environment and hazardous goods. Okay, that would make sense. Section six is building construction of what homes are built out of and materials and things. Seven was a big one. It was residential real estate was seven. Eight is commercial. And then nine was rural. So by the time you finish all these nine phases, you, you know your stuff. Yeah. And the, the problem is because there's so much that you're taking in when you're learning definitions, like book definitions, word for word, things like that. There are things that you never use ever again, but it's just the way it is. Now, if a person was to go get their real estate license, you can just learn from what my understanding is you can just learn residential real estate. Oh, okay. Yeah. Fair you enough. don't have to learn commercial and rural. Okay. I'm curious. So once you get your license, do you, is that permanent for the rest of your life or how does that work? Do you have to reapply? Yeah. So the license is good for one year. So you get this from the real estate council of Alberta. And then usually what they'll do are the real estate council, or there's another acronym area, which is the Alberta real estate association. They have upgraded courses that you have to take online before you can get your license. And I think it's a good idea to do that because it used to be years ago, you would just pay your real estate license and then they would send you, or you could print up your certificate on the computer and you're good to go for another year. But there's no real ongoing upgrades, realtor upgrades. And in this industry, there's a lot of, not as many as there used to be, there used to be quite a bit more, but there's a fair number of part-time realtors. So when I say part-time, I mean realtors that maybe will do one or two or four deals a year. And the rest of the time they're doing something else. They're doing their other full-time job. So when it comes down to the time when a friend wants to sell their house or their nephew wants to buy a house or something like that, they're a realtor. They can step up and help them buy their place or sell their place. But if they're not keeping up their education, a person has to question how good are they at what they do because they're not doing it all the time. I'm sure ethically they're trying to do the right thing and sell the house or buy the house, but they might not be doing the right process of selling the home. So they might be doing something wrong or something they didn't realize or the rules have changed and they didn't know it because they're not doing it full time. So what the upgrades do with Eureka and with the area they kind of keep you in line every year and they upgrade you with different things like, hey, here's something that's new as a realtor going forward. You're going to need this. In the last two years, one of them was, they call it RMS and it's residential measurement standards. So it's basically the standard for measuring square footage in a home. And it used to be when you measured a house, if you measured a room, you'd measure paint, paint, floor to ceiling, that was it. That was the size of the room, basically paint to paint because you're only doing side to side. But now it's completely different with attached and detached homes and detached homes include outside wall to outside wall, not inside wall to inside wall. So basically it's, it's just keeping the standard up. It's just making sure the realtors that are licensed are insured at a, at a certain standard. And just by what you're describing to me, it sounds like rules and the laws do change over time. And it's just ensuring that the realtors are kept up to speed with everything before they get their license. 
And this ensures that their clients are protected, for the lack of better words. Correct. Yeah. And I feel that it's very valid because if I was only selling one or two homes a year, I'm not looking at real estate like as far as contracts and transactions and things like that. I'm not looking at other transactions probably 11 and a half months of the year. The rest, the rest of the year, I'm not looking at them. I'm just interested when I'm actually selling a home because I'm not dealing with it every day. So I might forget, oh, I forgot to do this step or oh, I didn't do that. There's a, quite a few steps along the way that you need to have sort of a, like I have a checklist that I've put together. If I'm representing a buyer, I have one for, for sellers too, but I have for my buyers, if, they, if we had to get an accepted offer on a home, my checklist of things that they need to do. So we need to get the accepted offer. Then we need to drop an initial deposit off within three days of the offer. We have to work on removing our conditions, things like that. And if you don't have the plan and you're only doing a couple deals a year, there's a really good chance you're going to miss a few steps and it's going to come back and get you because you just forget. Well, fair enough. No, the more you do something, the better you get at it. But let's just bring this up because you said this a few minutes ago and it really caught my attention was you said every transaction is a little bit different and you're learning something new. How do, how do the transactions differ so much? Because for me, I mean, I'm just thinking a house, you, you buy and there, there's a certain amount of steps like you just indicated, but how, how can things differ so much? If you could just give us maybe a couple of highlights on that. Sure. Well, I just had one uh, a few weeks ago. I was out of town and we had a deadline of removing our conditions. My buyer bought a condo and basically we're looking to remove our conditions. And the seller had a special assessment for some work that was being done on the condo. Uh, a few years ago, there was some flooding and they came back, they remediated all the damage and everything, but each condo owner had to pay $2,500 out of their own pocket to get the work done. So that was something completely different that I hadn't seen before, that I had dealt with before. So then we had to deal with, well, who's going to be responsible for paying this? When are they going to pay this? Or is it already paid? Or is it already taken care of? And, and figure that out. So that again goes into the negotiation. Well, who's going to take care of it? In this circumstance, it worked out great. The seller took responsibility for it right away and said that, yeah, I knew I had to pay that. When I sell the condo, I'll pay the outstanding money and it'll just be done. But this is one of the situations where if you're not doing real estate full time, you might not know how to do this situation. So we had to do an amendment to add that term into the contract that the seller was going to be responsible for paying that on closing and the, the seller's realtor will make sure that money goes against the uh, special assessment. So there has to be some sort of record of what's going to happen so that the lawyers on closing day know what's due with the money once it's in their trust account. So that was something that I hadn't done before. So that's one. Sometimes when you buy a home, you have conditions on it. So you might have your financing condition and that's always kind of a tricky one. Sometimes people, they can't come up with the deposit to get a mortgage. Sometimes it's come up where they want to use their RRSPs for the down payment, but the RRSPs haven't been locked in, I believe for 90 days. So they can't touch that money. It has to be locked in for 90 days. And they didn't know that. So then the deal falls through or 
Sometimes they might have a, a home inspection, and then that's a whole other area where anything can happen. If your listeners haven't bought a home yet, they're wondering about the process. When you buy a home, usually you'll have a home inspection done, and um, a certified inspector will come in and tell you some things in the home, things that are good, things that need attention that are fine, but something to be aware of, and some other things that need immediate attention or are deficiencies, something that's broken or that needs to be fixed right away. And usually they're electric or water or heating, furnace, things like that. So anything can happen. So a lot of times you'll get the home inspection back and the buyer's not happy about something. So the realtors will have to negotiate. So I'll talk to my buyer and say, let's say it needs a new hot water tank. The hot water tank's fine. So I'll talk to my client and find out what he would like to do. He wants the sellers to put in a new hot water tank. Then I need to get in touch with the other realtor because I don't talk with the other side, the seller. I just talk with the other realtor. So I'll call the other realtor and say, okay, here's what we found in the home inspection report. We chopped around a little bit. We found a hot water tank that can be installed for a thousand bucks. So we'd, we'd like your seller to pay that. And then it can go any way from there. They can say, yeah, you're right. We knew it was broken. We'll get it fixed. They can say, well, you're not buying a brand new house. We'll meet you halfway. We'll pay half and you pay half. Or they can just say, no, take it as it is. Your buyer's going to have to get that fixed when they moved in kind of thing. So every situation always works out a little differently. And, and of course, every client, every buyer and seller acts differently too. Some people are first time homeowners and they need to be led a little bit. You have to instruct them, okay, here's what could happen. Here are some options, what you might want to look at doing, and then let them decide what they want to do from there. Give them some choices. And then there's other type people, maybe A-type personalities will say, nope, this is what we're doing. Like, Bruce, I need you to go back and I need you to do this for me and make it happen. And then you have to do your best to, to make that happen. So yeah, there's different situations for sure, Mickey. You just highlighted a lot. I think a lot of people that would maybe think being a realtor would be easy. Uh, I think you just, in this little five, 10 minutes, you gave a bunch of scenarios which I, I think would open up a lot of people's eyes going, it's not that easy. And maybe that's why there's a lot of people that get into it and maybe just get out of it right away or don't last in it. Yes. Yeah. I, I found, because I did it for a short time as part-time when I was doing the radio traffic, the air oh. helicopter traffic, it's a really hard thing to do well part-time. You need to get your feet on the ground and basically dig your heels in and stay. And even through COVID, because as a realtor, I work from home anyways. In Alberta, as a realtor, you have to work under a brokerage. Basically, you work under a broker who's your director, who's your manager. So there's a lot of responsibility on brokers to make sure that their realtors are doing things ethically and, and the right way. I have an amazing one. His name's Roger Arsenal. He's with Maxwell Canyon Creek really fortunate to work with Roger. But working from home, I try and keep as much of a structured day as, as I possibly can. Every day is a little different. It's not written in stone, but usually up by 7, 7.30. I try and get as much water in me as early in the morning as I can because my doctors told me that I, I need to drink more water. So no. yeah, so I'll get up in the morning and I'll have a couple of big glasses of water, which works out to about a liter. Then my reward, and it's, it sounds crazy, but 
my reward is after I drink my liter of water, now I can have my cup of coffee. So I pour my coffee and then I come up to the office. I get started. First thing, go through the emails, anything that's happened overnight. I kind of do real estate triage a little bit, kind of look at what's what's bleeding the worst, what needs the most attention, and then go from there. I, I learned this uh, a while ago. I, I read a really good book years ago, and it basically said to be successful or to help you be successful, tackle a couple of things early in the day that you're not looking forward to. So if you start a couple of things off in the early in the day that you hate the most, the rest of the day is going to be better and your day is just going to hopefully get better as you go. So if your workout, if you're, if you want to do 60 minutes on the treadmill, if that's your Achilles heel and you're like, oh, this is the thing I hate the most. If you do that first in the morning, then you've got that behind you an hour later, then you can focus on things are getting better. Things aren't as bad. But if you kind of have it lingering over your shoulder all day, oh, I still have to get on the treadmill. I haven't done that all day. And then more things come on your plate that you have to deal with. Then you start getting more stressed because you're like, oh my gosh, now I'm overwhelmed. And I still haven't got my workout in. And I have to call this guy and have that awkward argument. My client wants a refund, whatever it might be. So I try and get those conversations off earlier rather than later in the day. And then I'll spend a good part of the day going through some notes from my my current clients that I'm working with, buyers and sellers. If I have sellers, I'll get back to my sellers about any feedback from any showings, where we are with their listing. Are we on track? Do we need to take any ads out to help them market their property? How do they feel about things? Things like that. If I'm working with buyers, I send out emails with listings that say if they're looking in one area, say they're looking in Evergreen, let's say. If they're looking in that area, I can send them emails as the listings come up on MLS that meets their criteria and let them know, hey, here's a new listing or here's one that's sold or whatever. So I'll check in with my buyers and see where they're at with things and see how, how they feel about things. Are we on track? Do they want to raise their budget for what they're buying? Do they want to look at different areas? And you don't want to, you know, hammer them over the head every day, call them every day. And how about now? How about now? How about now? You know, you want to give them some time to kind of think about things too, but you want to make sure that you're there when they need you. And that was the biggest thing, Mickey, for me was realizing that as a realtor, very seldomly am I on my own time because you get busy and you're on buyers and sellers and prospects and showings it seems like you're always on someone else's time someone wants to go see your listing tonight at seven o'clock oh well i was going to go for dinner tonight but i guess that's not going to happen or i'll have to go for dinner earlier and then okay you change your reservation and then oh someone wants to see it now at 4 30. oh okay let's just cancel dinner and then we'll go tomorrow or whatever so you have to be super super flexible with your schedule in real estate, being a realtor, because I feel like you're just always on other people's time or other people's schedules. And then when you get busy, you get to a point where you just say, you know what, I'm going to turn my phone off for an hour. That's what voicemail is for, or I'm just going to have a nap, or I've got to do something. I got to go to the gym and, and not have my phone on me or whatever, because you just need a break. Because at one time you could be waiting for two, three, five, eight different phone calls from people on different items, different things. 
And it's a juggling act. You just, you have all these things that you're dealing with, but you're waiting for other people to get back to you. So it can be super rewarding when you help someone find their, their dream home, a young family, first time homeowners, and they're so excited and they become your, your best friends afterwards because you've helped them out so much. But having said that, it's without a doubt, the hardest thing I've ever done, Ricky. And this coming from a guy that worked in radio, so I didn't really work that hard to begin with, but it's definitely the hardest thing I've ever done. The way you're describing it, it sounds like it is really hard work. You're on everybody else's schedule. I know when we bought our house and the realtor that we used way back when, he was, he was definitely hustling all the time. And you definitely tell it wasn't just us. He, he had other people on his plate as well. And he was always there for us. We just give him a call. We want to look at this tonight. And he was there. So time is sort of running out on us. And there's, there's a ton of more questions I'd like to ask you, but I just want to narrow it down to a couple of things. So when you got your license, you said, I think you worked for Remax, I think it was, and you went into a mentorship program there. I'm interested about this because, again, people that are interested in getting into this type of career, how does that mentorship program work? How did it work for you and what did it entail? When I did this, and, and again, I was super fortunate with this because I, I don't know of anyone else that would do this, but I was chatting with them about becoming a realtor and they said, well, let's go for coffee. And we decided to talk about it. And he said, well, how about at the time to get a, a realtor's license was about $7,500 for all the coursing and the testing and everything. So he said, well, how about I'll help you get, I'll pay for you to get your license. When you get your license, you can work for me. And then as you sell homes, you can pay back that $7,500. So, and whatever we decide. So when you sell a house, if you give us $500 or $1,000 or whatever you want, just pay us back that way as you sell homes. So that was an opportunity I, I really couldn't pass up because at the time, I just didn't have $7,500 disposable cash to make it happen. So timing was everything and I was really fortunate to get that opportunity. But having said that, if a person was to get their realtor license, you can actually start talking to brokers even before. Actually, I'd probably recommend that. Talk to some brokers before you get into the course and get their opinion on things and get their opinion on companies that might fit their needs a little bit better. Remax is a worldwide brand. And because of that, everyone knows who Remax is, but because of that, they're very expensive to work for because their fees are extremely expensive. I was just gonna ask you then, so just clarify this for me as well, and as for the listeners, how does that work exactly with a broker? I've heard of Remax, I've heard of Royal Page, and the list goes on. So how, how does it actually work between you and the broker? Because you're independent, you are your own boss, but yet though at the same time, you're, you're working for a brokerage. How does that actually work? Yeah, they had good question. Usually they'll have different plans available, and depending on it could be, well, if you plan on selling one to five houses this year, this plan will work best for you. It's economically the best. If you sell five to 15 houses a year, this plan might work. If you sell more than 15 houses a year, you might want to go with this plan. And basically, the more homes you sell, the, the more money you pay into the brokerage. But basically, they have different plans set up, and it's a monthly payment to the brokerage. So... For me, the plan I'm on, I pay about $250 a month to my brokerage. 
And they also manage my personal website for me. And it has all our MLS listings on there. They update the website hourly. So anything that's changed, anything that's sold or uh, it's a new listing or whatever, it's updated every hour. It has a, a search app right on the website. You can search for homes right from there and everything. So, and I only pay 250 a month. And then for every sale, I think it's the first, might be the first 10 homes I sell. It's a $250 transaction fee to the brokerage for the first 10. Okay, I see. So in other words, you talk to a brokerage, you'll say, maybe I want to sell 10 houses a month or a year type of thing. And they'll say, okay, well, if you want to sell 10 houses a year, this is what we would recommend. And this is our fees with that. And with those fees, this is what we're going to take care of. In your case, I'm just using this as an example. We'll provide a space on our server and we'll take care of the website for you and whatever else may be involved with that. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And each company is different, Mickey. Like Remax, they will charge, basically their, their big thing are leads because they're, they have the Remax brand, the Remax balloon. So they charge for a thing, I, I think they, they called it lead streak and they would send you leads, but you pay for those through your Remax dues. So as far as I know, Remax is the most expensive company to work for as a realtor. But there's different groups, different situations for different companies. So like mine in Maxwell, I pay $250 a month and my website's included, which is a smoking great deal for me. There's other groups like CIR Realty or other companies, not just CIR, but other companies, they have plans where you only pay $99 a month. So it's very important to find out the ins and outs of each brokerage, like what's really good, what isn't maybe as good, and the things you want to know about in the brokerages. If for anyone that is interested in getting into real estate, you want to find out how much support you'll get with the brokerage as far as new leads coming in. How many new leads does the office get, say every month? How many realtors do we have in the office? And how many leads are going to come to me every month or every couple of months? Like, Am I only going to get a lead every two months kind of thing? And you want to ask too, are they, there's leads where someone asks a question about a house and then there's qualified leads where someone wants to know if they can see it because they're pre-approved and they're interested in buying. And the qualified leads are the ones are better because you're way closer making a sale with them because they're that much closer. They're actually, they want to see it. They want to go in, they feel pre-qualified for a mortgage, they're ready to go. But if someone's just calling and they're asking what the condo fees are in a apartment condo, that I, I don't consider that a qualified lead. I just considering that someone asking a, a question. So you want to know how qualified their leads are coming in to the office. And you want to know what do your monthly fees to the brokerage include? I was with a company before where there was no support. If, if you had a question, you pick up the phone and you, you call the broker and ask them a question. And you always kind of felt like, oh, sorry, I'm bothering you again. But that was the only support that you ever got was if you picked up the phone and called. With the company I'm with now, which I really love, their ongoing support, they do, like I should say, Maxwell, they do weekly meetings every Monday morning. And so there's the broker, 
and he'll talk about certain things that week, some things to look at and what's happened interesting in the last week, whatever. We have usually our in-house lawyer that'll speak for 15, 20 minutes, talk about some things that maybe he saw this last week that were interesting or keep an eye on this or whatever. And then we have a mortgage person, an in-house mortgage person that talks about interest rates and talks about if they've gone up or down and the Bank of Canada rate, what did she see happening this week? Does she feel it's going to go up or down or are rates going to hold the same? And so right away, for me anyways, right away Monday morning, I've had my water and I've got my first cup of coffee and I sit down for the meeting. And by the end of the meeting, by 1030, I'm already engaged. I've already chatted with my broker, a, a lawyer, uh, a mortgage person. I find out where the rates are for the week. Which way is it trending? Is it up or down? How is the market looking? Is it still a buyers or sellers? So I feel engaged right away Monday morning. And I think that's important. So you're not alone entirely. Yes, exactly. So this goes back to when you were saying earlier that the deals that you've made, nothing's straightforward. And you've got a team of people. Your brokerage firm is actually helping figure problems out if they need be. Correct. Yeah. And another thing too, and I just thought of something else is you want to find out about the conveyancing in your brokerage. So like I have my broker, but I also have an accountant and a conveyancing person in the office. Basically, I'll call them an an assistant, but they're an assistant for everyone that works for the brokerage, not just me, but they track all the transactions and make sure that all the paperwork deadlines are met and everyone has all the paperwork that they need right up until the lawyers. So it's very important because if you're working on a couple of deals at a time or even three or four deals at a time, one can be you just get an accepted offer that day. Another offer could be you're removing conditions today. Another offer could be it's closing day, you're turning the keys over. And another one could be you have to get the deposit in or something like that. So it's really good to have another set of eyes on things and say, hey, tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, Bruce, you need to do this today. Get this done. Oh, right. Sorry. Forgot about that. And then so the support team that I have, I am very fortunate to have. So I would suggest for anyone that was interested in, in getting into real estate, talk to some different brokers and just even for half an hour, go meet them, take them a coffee, meet them for coffee, whatever, and say you're interested you just have some questions and you just want to know, find out more about their brokerage and what they offer. And that's how the brokerage makes money. The more realtors they have working for them, the more money the the brokerage brings in. So usually they'll do whatever they can to help you succeed because if you succeed, then they're making more money as well. Which makes me think though too. So when you approach a brokerage, are they pretty easy to approach? I mean, they're pretty open. They're pretty receptive. Yes. Yeah, though, uh, absolutely. There are some, if you get that initial contact too, if you get kind of a weird vibe, like, uh, this guy, you know, this guy makes me feel like I'm bothering him. Maybe this wouldn't be a good fit because I'm asking questions about the industry. I want to get involved and you think he's doing me a huge favor. You meet me for coffee kind of thing where you want someone that'll be like, absolutely. Let's go for coffee. I'll tell you about what we offer here and help answer any questions. Like that's kind of who you want to work for because when you do get your license, guaranteed that support that person where that you wanted to meet for coffee 
that was kind of not really enthusiastic about meeting you, guaranteed once you're working for them, they're not going to be really enthusiastic to give you advice down the road. So it's maybe a precursor of what's to come. Fair enough. Do you apply? Is, is that the way it works to sign up? And do they turn you away if you do? At the end of the day, they can choose if you're a fit for them or not. To be honest, I don't know any reasons why they wouldn't, why they wouldn't hire you, bring you on board, other than maybe a family member already works there or something, or personality conflict with someone in the office or something that they know about or something like that. But other than that, you, you virtually work for yourself. It's your own, like I, I have my own incorporation, my own company. So, but in Alberta, you have to work for the brokerage. So, but I'm thankful for that because of the direction that I, I'm getting from Roger, because at, at times I'd be really lost without a broker because I know I could pick up the phone right now and call him and say, Hey Roger, I got a question about something. How do I do this? And if he can't talk right now, if he's in the middle of something, he'll be back to me in 10 minutes. Guaranteed. If he doesn't know the answer for me, he'll get it. And I really appreciate that from him. So that's kind of the broker that you want to work for where some aren't as responsive getting back to you or, or being as supportive as maybe you'd like or need. Because for someone that's new in your first first five years, three years, or you're doing your first transaction, you need help getting through a transaction to figure out deadlines and timelines. Okay, what needs to be done here? And the, the seller's asking a question about when this needs to be done. How do I do this? And backup offers and things like that there's always a curveball coming at you. So it's always good to have a broker's knowledge, broker have your back kind of thing. So basically when you started out, you're starting off with a brokerage and they know that you're a novice. So they're obviously going to be mentoring you and watching you and checking you. And that's good to have because it just sounds to me that what you're describing, deals can go astray and you can mess up and it's embarrassing for you and not to mention the brokerage firm as well. So that's the way you actually get mentored. And that's essentially how you kind of grew into this business. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And you narrow down the mistakes, mitigate the mistakes if you can, and do your best to make sure that they don't happen again. And after a transaction's over and possessions happen, either from my buyer who bought the place or my sellers turned over the keys for the place they just sold for every sale I've done, I'll review, I'll go through all of my notes uh, on each sale and go through and review everything and kind of do sort of a, okay, I probably should have done that. And, oh yeah, I didn't do that. Or, oh, that was good. I did that. I'll make sure I do that next time. And I feel it's the only way to grow because if you're just in it for the, the paycheck and you're just waiting for the next one to come, you don't grow and you don't get any better. You need to look back at things and after it's all said and done and, and go through it and say, Okay, that was good. I'll keep doing that. That was bad. I got to stop that from happening and just keep doing that going forward. And then that's, I think that's how you grow. That's how you get a little bit better. And as you get better, I feel that's how you get a little bit more confidence and maybe a little bit of a swagger. You look like a, a suave uh, veteran a little bit. You know what you're doing because at first you're just like deer in headlights. Your eyes are wide open and you're like, okay, I don't know. We're listing your house today. I don't know what we're doing, but you're dealing with people's livelihoods. Their biggest purchase or their biggest sale of their life you're dealing with. You have to have some confidence in yourself of what you're doing. 
Because if you don't look confident, guaranteed they're going to see that right away. And they're going to second guess their choice of picking you. So you have to have a little bit of confidence in what you're doing. And for me to get that confidence, what works for me is growing as a realtor as I go. And when I finish a transaction, I go through it and, and see things that worked and some things maybe that didn't work as well as I would have liked and things that I never want to do ever again and move forward. And then going forward, having a plan. And my world is just a bunch of checklists now because I've come up with a bunch of things. Okay, well, I'm doing this. I'm sending my paperwork into my brokerage. I've got to do these 15 things. And when I'm sending the stuff off to the lawyers, I got to send these things. And so checklists for me have really worked well and reviewing the files when I'm all, when I'm all done really seems to help too. Time's sort of running out. So any other tidbits of advice for anybody who wants to get into real estate, any other words of wisdom or advice that you'd like to just give out there? I'd say the, the best first initial things you could do is talk to a couple of people that are realtors that, that you trust their opinion and someone that you're comfortable talking with and they're comfortable talking with you. So you feel like you're getting an honest opinion, maybe a family member or a good family friend or someone like that and get their thoughts on it and ask them about the goods and the bads, how they like it, how long they've been doing it, things like that. Then if there's still some interest there, I would highly suggest talk to some brokers and more than one because every personality is different and every brokerage is different. So I would suggest even talk to three different brokers, go for coffee for a half hour or an hour and tell them what your plan is that you're looking at becoming a realtor. What does the brokerage offer if you were to get your license and if you were to come work for them, what would they offer? Things like that. And keep up with your upgrading as you go along, even after you become a realtor. Calgary Real Estate Board has a bunch of different upgraded classes and everything with COVID now, everything is online, no classrooms, but they have every month they'll have eight or 10 different courses that you can take online. And there's certifications. There's four certifications that I've gotten over the last couple of years, just because it's just more tools in the toolbox. So I've got a designation as a accredited buyer's representative, a seller's representative specialist, a real estate negotiation expert, and a certified condominium specialist. So it fills up the business card and it looks all pretty. So in this city, like there's more than 5,000 realtors in Calgary. So when someone's going to list their house, anything you can do that's going to stand up and above everyone else whether it's through accreditations, different programs that you've earned, or something that you can offer that other realtors can't offer, it's more likely that you'll get the listing. So that's why I do my upgrading. But, but those would be the three things, Mickey, I would do is talk to friends and family that are realtors, talk to some people whose opinion you trust, find out more about it. Then second step would be talk to some brokers, maybe two or three brokers, get their opinions about what they have to offer and see if the fit might be right for you. And then the third would be once you do become a realtor, keep up with your, your schooling and your upgrading and just keep moving forward through schooling, through learning lessons as you go, the mistakes, and you will make mistakes when you get into it. It's just about mitigating those mistakes and make sure you stop them happening and just getting better. 
Any final thoughts on just your whole career from all the radio stations you worked at in broadcasting and you made your move into real estate, I think you said in your late 40s. And so that's been what now, 10 years now, at least 10 years, because you said it was about 2013, 2012, 2013, you moved into real estate. So just in general, anything that you'd like to pass on to people that maybe want to get into radio or real estate or or just even unsure about what they want to do with their career, or maybe like you, they're about in their mid forties, late forties, they want like I need to switch. I need to switch. I'm thinking about doing this. Any anything that you've learned that you've picked up that you'd like to sort of pass on to anybody else? I know it sounds cliche, but I don't think it's never too late to try something new or to learn something new. I was almost 50 and all I did up to that point was radio. So like I say, I really didn't work ever in radio. So this was like nose to the grindstone and get at her and and roll up the sleeves. And all of a sudden it's a white collar job. And it was strange to, to do it. And it was scary as anything to just quit radio and just tackle something new. But in hindsight, it's something I wish I would have done a long time ago, even 15, even even 20 years ago, I wish I would have done it. So to anyone listening, I would suggest it's never too late. Don't ever feel like you're trapped or you're stuck somewhere that you you got this job that's not going anywhere or whatever the situation is. There's always an answer. You can always find something through a job or through a relationship or whatever. Just be happy and be kind and it's never too late. Well, words of wisdom. Um, with that, I'd like to say thanks to Bruce for the good conversation, the good interview this afternoon. I really, really appreciate his time. And uh, I'm sure anybody who's interested in getting into radio or for that matter, just real estate or being a realtor, I think people have probably found this uh, interview very fruitful and, and worthwhile. Thank you, Mickey. I really appreciate your time. It's good seeing you again. I just want to thank Bruce for that informative and inspiring interview. Some of the key takeaways are the following. As Bruce did graduate from the Columbia Academy, a private institution, he did highlight some things to consider in regards to public and private schools. He did describe his career in radio that extends just over 30 years. Some of the key things that he stressed for anyone interested in pursuing a career in this field are the following. Be flexible. Learn and be able to do as much as you can. Understand what the industry and people around you want you to do. Understand their expectations. Do not be afraid to do the work and go beyond those expectations. And above all, there is nothing wrong with being a nice person and getting along with others. I think this actually applies to every career that I can think of. Real true words of wisdom. Bruce describes how he made the transition from radio to being a realtor. Some real good points here for anyone considering a career change, especially later in life. For listeners that are interested in becoming a realtor, Bruce's suggestions are talk to brokers, at least three, and see how they work. Surprisingly, even though you are on your own as a realtor, you still need your back covered by a good broker, so finding a good one is imperative. Search out family and friends or acquaintances that are already in the business 
and get their take on things. In essence, do your homework before you get involved. Doing it part-time will only take you so far as Bruce talked about this. It is short-lived. Eventually, you have to do it or pursue it full-time if you really want to make this work. He also said this is the hardest thing he's ever done, but is also the most rewarding. His last words of wisdom were, are, be a lifelong learner as things do change and it's never too late to change a career as he did later in life as well. Once again, I would like to thank Bruce for that great, inspiring and motivational interview. Please tune in for the next episode of The Career Guy where I will be interviewing Chris Baker, CEO of Avente Energy. He will talk about his various roles he has had in the energy sector, eventually becoming CEO of Avente. Also, if you'd like to read the latest blogs from The Career Guy or hear the other interviews, please go to The Career Guy website, www.thecareerguy.ca.